Welcome to the Broader Football Podcast. In this episode, we discuss the rejection of the Super League and UEFA's brand new Champions League format. So on Sunday night, there were plans for a new Super League. In only the next couple of days, these were strongly rejected. However, in the meantime, plans for a new Champions League format were signed off. How did you feel about that? Did you think it was sort of a disguised move by UEFA? I thought it was a little bit, but it was a, it was a strange one in the fact that the the signed-off move and the new format of increasing the teams sort of highlight the reason why the teams wanted to break away in the Super League in the first place, try and concentrate the money pool. So I don't know if it was disguised, but I thought it was just strange to sort of announce something that was obviously the reason why they wanted a Super League. Because it's gone from what it is now, a 32-group stage format, to a 36-single-league structure. So teams at the moment play three opponents twice in the group stage. But in the new format, teams will play 10 different teams. And then those who finished highest up will essentially go into the classic knockout phases. All in all, you're going to be playing four extra games in the group stage before the knockout stages. But out of the four additional places for the Champions League, two of those will be from teams who basically get there on historic merit that wouldn't have made it otherwise. It's just, it's just proving a point, isn't it? I, I, it's such a, such a strange move all around. It's sort of proving the point of the European Super League clubs who want to concentrate the amount of teams and less games so they don't have to, players, don't have to play as much, more money. And then they go and increase the number of teams to sort of just prove their point. And then they go and put two places in for historical value based on not how good you are now, but how good you have been, which is then the same as what the European Super League wanted to do. They wanted to put clubs in that have done well before and have money. And if you look at teams like Arsenal, Spurs, AC Milan, they haven't won the league or any European competition in years. UEFA was just sort of proving the European Super League point. And if, and there's just the, who's the better of two evils in terms of this new format, really. It wasn't enough for these big teams, I think, because they wanted absolute guarantee without any jeopardy which I think is obviously probably something related to the fact that we've got a lot of American owners in the Premier League Liverpool owners Blazers at Manchester United and the Cronkies at Arsenal they'll be looking at their NFL teams and thinking oh that's great over there because we're not gonna have any risk of relegation we're gonna be in the top leagues every single time and we basically can't lose anything from that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I saw a lot of people saying they were surprised. Or it seemed like within comments and stuff, people were surprised it's happened. I, I can't imagine why, if, when you invite owners from parts of the world where you've got that structure, you can't then be shocked and surprised, especially the leagues and the, like, the, like the FA, and they can't be, then be shocked and surprised that they try and pull something like this. Because in when they own their NFL teams and stuff, they know how, a minimum how much money they're going to get a year. So if they finish bottom of the league or whatever, they know how much they can, they can plan and anything else is a bonus. So I'm not surprised that they tried to pull something like this. It's just the way it was done was not, it's just not just not European football, is it? It's um, the jeopardy and the, un, like the unknown is what attracts people to watch it. We almost get lured into a false sense of security because sport in itself isn't actually business secure, is it? No, especially not European football. If you think about, if you could tell someone, if you just broke down and did like a package on a business, 
and you could put down a one year, you could have, you could finish top of the Premier League and have all this money. And next year, you get relegated and lose all this money. No one would buy it if it wasn't for. So what attracts people to buy football clubs is just the romance, it's the uh, the unknown, it's the yeah, it's just owning the history, part of history, basically. Reforms within football do happen, don't they? Like we've had over the last fifty years or so, various reforms in European football, even in the Premier League. You know, like Sky Sports, they basically grew alongside the Premier League since 1992. And they almost go on like football didn't exist before that. Well, everyone forgets that the Premier League was sort of the same sort of thing. It's sort of having your own branding, having your own TV rights and just sticking the founding team to the top. Obviously, you had promotion relegation, which made it fine. But it's the same sort of concept, sort of trying to concentrate the money to teams in the top league. Um, so yeah, people do forget that sport's been a lot around a lot longer than these Premier, like Premier League has, which was early nineties. I think I think it was more the way. I don't think people were objected to change, but I think it was just the way that the change was trying to be put in place was the way that people didn't like it. I'm going to look at the new Champions League format quickly from UEFA's point of view. So with all of the additional games, overall you're looking at what we've got now is 125. And what we yeah. will have is 225. Yeah. And <laughs> that's crazy to me because essentially what they're trying to do is obvious. They call it growing the game. So they want as many people to watch the game and more games so they can make more money from broadcasting and commercial deals. That is, I think, similar to what the Super League want in terms of those clubs. They basically want the biggest games more frequently. Yeah, I think I think yeah, as you say, the 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 four is there, and then the concept. I think the concept's great. I think the concept's great if done correctly, it'd be great. But the way it was done was some of the worst, <laughs> worst football decisions I've seen in a long time. That's to get onto that, I'm sure. But um, just yeah, the concept of trying to con- put together the best teams and the most. Because if you look at, it, I, I bet if you broke down the viewing figures and who what who buys Sky, and who buys BT Sport. You'll find that a lot of people that buy it probably United and Liverpool fans and teams are guaranteed to be on TV every week. I doubt there's many Burnley fans that pay for Sky every week just to watch their team play football. So, yeah, the concept is the concept's fine and there's nothing new. Do you think the way the owners moved for the Super League, you, I mean, how bad is that strategy in your eyes? I, I, I would struggle to put into words how, I, how bad the sort of the decision was made. It is, um, it's just basic. You just, if you're making a big decision in any business, whether it be, whether, you, whether it be your local bakery, your local hairdressers, it be a, anything, or it be a billion dollar company like Man United and something like that. You, every time you make a decision that might be quite big and drastic, you think about how it's going to affect everyone within your business and everyone who relies on your business and fans, although you might, they might not think it. Fans in showing this week have so much power. And they weren't consulted. Players who were the reason why teams are watched every week had no say in it. Managers didn't have any say in it. So it's just it's basic and it, it would mean so much trouble saved if they just asked the people who needed to be asked in the first place. Do you think that says a lot about how accustomed they have become to taking advantage of fans? Yeah, I would say so. I think nowadays sort of the the match in some of those big clubs with owners who don't aren't from the area and stuff like that 
or often country match day fans aren't always seen as they're probably seen as a bit of not an inconvenience, but they're not that important. If you think if you think at Old Trafford, I don't know what the attendance is every week, but you, you're looking at upwards of eighty thousand every week at Old Trafford. Those eighty thousand people each week, the regulars who go every week, season holders, whoever they are, they don't make up a massive pool of the people who are interested in the business. If you broke it down, there'd be a, a very tiny percentage. So I think, I think, yeah, just in. But then I think what the power is shown this week is that even if you don't go to the games every week, as long as you care, fans have so much power. And I think Man City, I know they signed on to the Super League. I think it's just such a great example of a. Although he signed on as a club, sort of looking at the fans and thinking we've done something very wrong here. And in my look, if you look at City and how they're owned, I think I wasn't expecting that. And I think that was a nice surprise to have, really. We all sort of stereotype them as we did with PSG. They've got this new money, Middle Eastern owned, and you'd, you'd expect them to be first in. But by the sounds of it, they almost. Well, they were one of the first out, I think, alongside yeah. Chelsea. But then City do a lot of, have done a lot of work for the surrounding community. You know, they yeah. put loads of money in there. Yeah, if you look around the Etihad Stadium, you've got all sorts. Um, they've made massive infrastructure, rebuilds and all that sort of thing. Built that built a training stadium, which the women's team used, which is fantastic. And yeah, the whole park around the stadium was great. And it's just a great, although, as you said, they, they're not completely out of blame. They did sign up to this European Super League, but um, they are the best team in the world, so you can sort of excuse that. But um, I think they've shown that if you don't need, if you don't, though you must be a global business, you don't need to neglect the people who were there from the beginning. You don't need to neglect the people who founded your club hundreds of years ago. So I think, yeah, they're, they're a good example of sort of tapping in and considering everyone no matter how small and how relevant they may now be. Yeah, so we're not letting them off the hook by any means, no. but it perhaps reveals how poorly planned everything was. Yeah. And if you look at the the motive behind it was essentially to cut UEFA out and FIFA out, these big uh, global footballing organisations, just so, well, I'd assume that they can just pull the money for themselves. And so UEFA aren't taking a cut of any of the broadcasting rights. If you look at the, the revenue and the profit that these teams make, maybe not profit if you're talking about Barcelona and Real Madrid because they're uh, right in it. Um, if they outweigh UEFA in sort of sort of financial power massively, um, and they try to play their hand, and it didn't work. Um, but I think I don't think they're completely off. Like to, I don't mean they're completely to blame. I think UEFA have got a lot to stand up and be accounted for as well. So, as I said previously, because both of these ideas fundamentally are just going to be more high profile games more regularly, the only issue with that is i know I know that's probably great for business for the global audience, but sometimes I think less is more is probably a good phrase to use here because yeah. the more the more you have these games, surely, as we found out this season at times. When you have midweek fixtures, the quality of football we're seeing just isn't up to the same standard. Yeah, definitely. When you're playing, sort of, we had Liverpool, Real Madrid recently, and you had City, Dortmund. Those games are great, but there's no history there. So we may play, like as a Spurs fan, we may play 
Chelsea and Arsenal at least twice a year. And if we were in a different country, that would be boring because there's no history. There's no, but you can, if you're playing someone twice a year and you've got that sort of history with them, you've got that rivalry, different results and sort of not hatred, but sort of passion. Um, you can sort of get with it and sort of build yourself up for each game. But if you're playing Real Madrid like three times a season, every season, there's no, there's no history there to sort of fuel your passion for each game. Sort of go, well, it's just another game against a big team. It's probably going to be. Well, that second Liverpool game in the Real Madrid second leg, like a really boring game of football. So yeah, it just shows that these aren't history and sort of the the storyline behind each game is sometimes more important than the stand of it. Yeah, I agree because I think well next week, the next two weeks, we've we're now into the Champions League semi-finals. Now I think it's a a great couple of ties coming up because we've got Manchester City versus PSG. In one semi-final, two teams with the new money who are going to go against each other and have both never won it. Yep. But the fact that we're limiting this game to not even, it's not even guaranteed to happen, but the fact you're, we're sort of lucky enough to see it, I think one holds a huge potential like nostalgia effect in the future. And um, two, you just know you're witnessing something really rare as well. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think the magic of the Champions League is, uh, firstly, you don't, you always have a storyline each season. Most, most seasons you have a storyline there, like a team gets through where maybe they're not as good as some of the other teams, like sort of Spurs run a few years ago. Um, sort of that drama and, and it's just the sort of specialty of sort of getting that opportunity to play against the big teams, but you don't know how often it's going to happen. Um, then one-off nights are great. Uh, I, I don't see, apart from a monetary point of view, I don't see why you'd want to make them frequently and seasonal, really. Yeah, I wonder if the people like sanctioning this change or, or trying to cause like an influx of high-profile football matches all the time sort of realise that you can't manufacture it and you can't force it. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think they underestimated the sort of history I think they underestimate the fact that they, they, they obviously thought fans would just want to watch the best teams against the best teams. When as if, if you look at, I don't know, if you look at Man United Burnley as a game, there's a little rivalry there because they're local. Um, don't know how big it is. It's probably not massive, but there's, there's something there. Um, yeah. If you look at Chelsea Fulham, there's something there because they're local rivals. There's, I think they underestimated the fact that fans like just fans of English clubs anyway like to see the passion and the storyline and the sort of the rivalry over seeing the best teams every week. Because if you if you if you watch a team every three times season play against Barcelona, and the same thing happens every season, well, you think, well, okay. But if when Burnley turned up to Liverpool a couple of weeks ago and beat them, then that's that's a completely different storyline. That people like to see that more than. I think English football fans like to see that more than sort of the big, high-profile games regularly, really. Yeah, I think those smaller ties are crucial to the to the bigger picture because, as you said, with a game like Man United-Burnley, yes, they'll play Man City one week and that's a big, a big derby, of course. But then there are loads of other fixtures. Like, you can, it's all well and good beating all the, winning all the big games. But as we know, if you then don't go and, beat the teams you really should be below you, then you're not yeah. going to get anywhere. 
it's sort of the league structure as well. Obviously, if you if you're constantly playing just like knockout football against teams, doesn't always mean anything. But throughout the course of season, if you're one week one week you turn up and beat City three 0 next week you can lose to West Brom, and that's just the magic of it. So with the rejection of the Super League, do you think that proves that fans still have a big influence in the football industry? I think it does. But I think if you put them into a sort of percentage value of how much those fans make up of a wider audience, people who care about a football club or are affected by football club's decisions, I think they still make up a very small, small percentage. I mean, power-wise and sort of caring-wise, they're probably high percentage. But as a as a sort of percentage of the overall, I don't think that high percentage still. But it shows what happens when you don't consult your fans properly. I think that's the main danger. Yeah, I think when we saw, obviously, fans at Stamford Bridge, I think there were Tottenham fans at White Hart Lane and yeah, a couple. obviously had Manchester United fans at the training ground. That's obviously getting very much in the face um, of these owners that probably mm-hmm. don't usually see this sort of thing and they're very behind the scenes. But I think they had all of the other powers on their side. So they had governments, big footballing bodies like UEFA and FIFA, and television broadcasters like Sky Sports. Mm-hmm. And these were all collectively against the Super League. And we obviously know why, because they've all got their own individual interests. But I did kind of feel like the fans were used as sort of like um, like a bargaining tool. Like oh, with... We're taking you're taking away football from the fans. Definitely, because they sort of what if you go to a sponsor or a TV broadcast, you want to be, be able to say how many people you think are going to watch you every week. So if you could say, if you said to a potential sponsor, your advertising board is going to be seen in the stadium in front of in non-COVID times, eighty thousand people every game, and then on TV it's going to be on Sky Sports prime time, and it's going to be seen by millions of people. They go, yes. But if you say, oh, you're going to have 10,000 people in the ground and no one's going to see it on TV, you're not going to attract the same sort of money. So I think fans are used as a marketing like power chip to sort of attract sponsors and stuff. But as you can see with the big clubs, I think they're rarely consulted about big decisions. Because I especially noticed that with Sky Sports because some of the content that was coming out, obviously you've got the likes of Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville, who were obviously former players. I don't know. Am I being cynical in thinking if the Super League did go ahead, Sky Sports would be first in line? I think they they came out and said that they wouldn't. But money's money, isn't it, sometimes? I think think sometimes that I wouldn't underestimate sort of power that money has on um, affecting decisions. But you'd like to think that there'd be having been in the sort of Premier League for this long and being involved with proper, not possible fans, but English football fans and for the past, what's now, 30 odd years, that you would have thought they'd have some sort of passion and sort of turning it down and some sort of moral high ground sort of thing. Yeah, I think the one thing that definitely makes the Super League aspect worse than the argument that people say Oh well, football sold its soul when it when they started the Premier League in 1992. Is mm-hmm. that the Super League is like a closed shop, completely 
closed. You'd have them 15 teams who it was supposed to be. And then it was going to be five who would qualify each uh, each season, I believe, through domestic achievements. Yeah, which is good. It's all fine and good. But if you've got if, if you've got six Premier League teams in there already, and yes, say yes, say as they apparently these people think they should in terms of money wise, they should finish in the top six in any order. If you think that seventh team could be anyone in the Premier League, that seventh team could be Leeds, Everton, someone like that. How likely is it that a Leeds or an Everton, on a season when they finished lower than sixth in the Premier League, how likely is it that they're going to go and beat Real Madrid in their day? How likely is it they're going to beat Man City and get it for a whole tournament, beating all those teams? It's very unlikely. So I think the fact that saying a five teams like the four who's the fourth place in the Spanish league is not going to beat Man City over a course of the whole competition. They might do on a if having a good season or but I think the five the five places was just sentiment to try and get themselves out of it. I don't think there was a lot of a lot of hoping in there. I think it's a just a sign to put in there to please people and it hasn't worked. Yeah, I think it was a sort of a poorly planned thing where they were just like Oh well, there's 15 of us. We want to protect our investments, but mm. we'll give th- we'll give them five spaces every year. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I think I think it was that just sort of well, we can't be seen to having like a closed franchise league, so we're going to put five teams in there, different teams every season, depending on their achievements, and then everyone think it's fine. And I think they found out fairly quickly that it was not. In places like America, you they've obviously got closed franchises like the NFL, NBA and as far as I'm aware they're like the main professional leagues, they don't have anything under it basically is what I'm saying Yeah. so if how, how would a Super League do you think because I know they were going to detach fully that's what UEFA was saying, they'd have to be banned from every other competition and I don't think we'll ever find out whether they would have been able to stay in the Premier League and do that at the same time but how do you think a Super League would have affected the rest of the football hierarchy I think I think it sounds bad but it would it probably make the Champions League more interesting not having those teams in it Um, can you imagine Leeds I keep using Leeds as an example but I love the football they play too fair so um, can you imagine Leeds on a Wednesday night on BT Sport against PSG? I mean, that could happen in a few years. Obviously, if they finish in the top four, obviously, and I think that's fairly possible with the team they got and the way they play. But can you? That would be great. I think that'd be great for sport. I would love to watch that more. Um, but in terms, it would lower the standard, obviously, of the Champions League. It would just make it more once we're like, unpredictable. Obviously, they're trying to sell this the Super League idea with the idea that more people will watch it, so then naturally the money will just trickle down. Yeah. But I don't know. I I think the Premier League would just be a weakened product overall because I just think less people would be watching it. Yeah, the Premier League would be a weakened product. Definitely, I think Champions League would be weaker, but it'd be more interesting. But yeah, the Premier League sort of needs doesn't need them, but it's sort of grown into itself and you've sort of had this sort of build-up of the top six, or the big six, sorry, but sort of the fairy tale stories of Leicester and that sort of thing, and you won't get that in the Super League. 
So I think that's why the Premier League needs these big teams because it's always nice. Although I'm a fan of one of the big six, it's always nice to see someone who isn't big six upset. If, like when talk about again when Leeds beat City couple two weekends ago, great result. So I don't think you'd see that in the Super League. So the plans for the Super League, essentially, it seemed pretty ruined at the time. I I I was pretty convinced actually that when all of these owners put their name to something, which they don't usually do that means it's probably going to go ahead. Mm-hmm. But I think it started to crumble after about 48 hours anyway. Um, where do you see clubs going from here? Like the relationships between the fans and the owners of these clubs? I think they've got a lot of grovelling to do. I think that can only benefit fans Um in terms of their marketing and sort of offers and sort of ticket prices now, I think um, fan associations and supporters trusts, which a lot of the teams will have, um, will hold a lot of power. I think what you'll see is a lot of things that those supporters trusts wanting to get done being put in motion in the next couple of years or a couple of seasons because the football clubs are sort of like have no power, any, like have no bargaining. They say, well, we can't do that. And supporters trust be like, well, you did this without saying, so you can do what you, you can sort of you can sort of do what we say, basically. So I'd hope to see a lot of like fan decision basis being made in the next couple of seasons. Yeah, so you think it could actually be like a, a chance for real progression in terms of yeah. in terms of like the ownership model? Um, because I have a feeling clubs like Arsenal, who aren't usually as forward in the transfer market, are going to be looking to have a big a big summer in the transfer market. Yeah. Just do you think there's a, a risk that They'll be looking to do that just to get a big chunk of the fans back on side. It's not the only way to sort of please fans, basically. Um, transfer, well, I think it's a big way to please fans. A bit of investment. But there's lots of things in clubs and how they run that clubs that fans want change first. Like the hardcore season goals, they want change first. I think we'll see them change first. And then if the money's there, I think the investment will... Um, I think we'll see a bit more transfer investment in sort of players that fans want. I think we're also seeing something from the rest of the Premier League clubs as well. You've seen like the other 14 clubs are sort of piling the pressure on, because, which is something we don't usually see. I think we've become so accustomed to these six clubs in the Premier League just running the show with their influence. But now I think it might actually go the other way for a while. They obviously did leave various committees in the process and it's easier said than done just to return. And we've seen people like the people who backed it, like Ed Woodward, uh, ultimately taking the hit and like due to leave jobs as well. I think a lot of fans are sort of dissociated with their owner. I think if you there's a I think Joel Glazer hadn't been into Manchester in two years or something like that, I read it the other day. Which is just a ridiculous thing to think. I think the I think I think don't think you can throw sort of city and Spurs, maybe even Chelsea sometimes in with a sort of big dissociate owners. They sort of prove they might be now. But Daniel Levy's at most Spurs games, from what I see. The Man City chairman's at a lot of games, or a member of representatives are at most games. Um, and Abramovich went to Stamford Bridge a lot before he was banned due to a sort of nation political issues. Um, so I think but it's just the clubs like Liverpool... Arsenal and Man United have such a dissociation with their owner. 
Like they probably don't know who the actual owner of their club is in terms if they broke it down financially. And I think that's sad because you don't know. You've got people who don't know, haven't been into the country in a few years trying to control a product that affects loads of people like religiously. So I think that needs to change. What what they're planning to do is talk about in government today is sort of looking at the 50 plus one rule, um, which they have in the Bundesliga, which I think means only 49% can be private owned and the rest is under some sort of fan ownership. Yeah. Is is that something that's realistic in the Premier League? Uh, Short answer is no. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's because Germany have always been like that so yeah they said 50 plus 1 was just a, like a smart way of saying or short way of saying that the fans must have a controlling interest they must like members must have at least 51% of the company so they make their final decisions so there's nothing to stop the other 49% being owned by a massive oil firm or anything like that but um, yeah but the only problem with the Premier League is that this never since Premier League has been formed has not had that so now you'd struggle to, like, if you went out to Stan Kroenke at Arsenal and said, right, you have to sell 51%, I don't know if he owns 100%, but you have to sell 51% of your company now to the fans and the members. He's just going to say no. Um, so, because they don't, they don't like not having control, as you can see, you've seen from decisions made in the past week, they just don't like having not having control over something that shouldn't be theirs to fully control. So I think some sort of fan ownership would be better. But I don't think you'll ever get a 51 plus one move in the next few years. Yeah, how would that happen? Would the fans literally have to find the money for 51% of the club? Usually, it's um, the way it happens, like Barcelona's got members, you pay like a membership each year. Um, not like a membership where you can get access to tickets and stuff like that, but like a voting membership where you buy into the fan organisation and then you then own you are then part of the board of that fan association. That fan association then uses your money to pay for the, the club and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, they need to find the money and have enough members. Yeah, before I see that happening, I think these American owners who want to protect their assets, instead of giving up most of the control, they're just going to sell the club completely, aren't they? If you could find enough members around the world to sort of pay a fee every year to sort of or pay an initial fee to sort of buy that bit of the club and pay a, like a, I don't know how much it would be, a fee every season to keep the club running. I think there'd be, you'd, you'd probably find it the following of some of these football clubs, but I don't see the owners wanting to give up their money. All right, we've spoken a lot about the American owners in the Premier League. I do want to touch on the La Liga just for a bit, because I think... The main driving force outside of England was definitely Florentino Perez, yeah. the president of Real Madrid, because the Germans weren't interested because of that model. They they don't almost have the right to to go behind the fans' back like that. Yeah. In England, they seem a little bit mixed, but in La Liga, it's a different school of thought where it sort of feels like they need to make this change happen. Otherwise, the, the league will be in a desperate state. Yeah, the financial state of Spanish football is really bad at the moment. And I think Real Madrid aren't on course to make a profit, like they make, make a massive loss and save with Barcelona. Barcelona's actually got a members, um, massive members, worldwide members club, um, in terms of where those members sort of vote in the president and stuff like that, like you would in the German model. 
sort of voting the president and all these things. So strange that they, um, I think just the financial pressure outweighed the fact they <laughs> outweighed the thought of asking whether the fans were consulted. They said yes to it because of the, how much losses the company was going to make. But I think you got to remember is these people at the top of the clubs, if they, if the club doesn't make a profit, they're not going to get paid. Um, I think sometimes self-interest um, overtakes everything when there's money involved. Yeah, and Perez even said, this isn't over yet. Does that worry you? What do you make of that? It doesn't worry me because he's shown that he's complete, he, he had a completely different idea of how this was going to go compared to every single other member of the 12 as well. Like all the other members, as soon as they saw their fans back out or back, didn't like it, they said, no, that's fine. Yeah, we understand. I made a mistake. We apologise. But he's still going for it. I just I don't understand it. I think I think money is talking. I think he's disillusioned, especially when he said 16, 24-year-olds don't like watching football. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> it's, it's such a strange thing to do. If you, if you go on a terrace at if you go on a terrace at League One Club, if you go on a terrace at Premier, no, terrace at Premier League Club, if you, go, if you sit in a Premier League Club, it's full of people, full of parents taking their kids for the first time. It's full of young fans. You've got if you broke down number of fans that sort of pay membership each season, like I pay a membership for Spurs every season, they, there's going to be loads of young people. It's, young people like watching football. I don't. It's not. It's, it's it's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. I don't understand it. And but the thing is, he said that 16, 24 year olds don't like football. But it seems like no. Where's his data? He did obviously didn't ask anyone about the European Super League. He just didn't ask the fans whether they wanted it. So how do you know that real good 16, 24-year-old fans don't want it? I think it's a ridiculous comment to say and is, um, yeah, very strange. Well, yeah, I think maybe if they, I mean, part of the problem maybe is that Real Madrid have probably spent too much money over the last couple of decades. Yeah. That's probably why they're in that situation. Yeah, 100%. I think, I think it was very, very strange. <laughs> um do not understand it. I, I think Florentino, back to your point earlier, Florentino Perez wasn't just, the, the other 12, all the clubs, 12 clubs were disillusions for what their fans wanted. Florentino Perez seems to be disillusioned for what the fans wanted and what the rest of the 12, the rest of the 12, what the other 11 teams wanted as well. Um, I think it's just, it's, I can't see him getting much backing from anyone now. Yeah, his power in Madrid has probably clouded his judgment a fair bit. And I think we've sort of seen that with players and managers' responses. Like Zidane and the players, when they were interviewed about it, were very much like, that's not our job to speak about that. You know, whereas in England, we saw with Klopp, Pep Guardiola, the players as well in their post-match interviews were very much sort of anti the idea. Yeah, I think it's just such a weird thing. You just ask, you, you just as a sort of courtesy, you tell, and as a courtesy, you ask people what they think of a decision, and they just didn't do it. You didn't ask the players, didn't ask the manager, didn't ask people who actually attract people to your football club to support them. Um, I think, yeah, it's just, I think it shouldn't be lived down. I don't think the talk about teams getting deducted points and stuff and all this, but I think. Just tell the owners, just find the owners, just tell the owners they have to sell their company for this, otherwise they'll be banned from this and that. And then we'll see how deep their pockets are. Um, we'll see how much they care about their money then. And I think you'll find that if you put an ultimatum on these people, 
who aren't actually that associated with these football clubs, I think you'll surprisingly find how much they care. And that's not just me saying that because I think it. I think you've seen the past week that you. It's just I don't understand how a club built over hundreds of years with fans who have gone for their whole lifetime, how they cannot be asked about such a big decision that affects them. And to me, it's just it's basic business. It's just basic. Just you just do it as a courtesy. I will never understand it, and I think it should never be forgotten. Well, those something like the Super League probably won't happen again. Do you yeah. do you think this idea of reform is over? Because we've obviously got the Champions League new new format coming in in the 2024-25 season. I don't think it's over. As I said earlier, I think the European Super League is as a as an idea. The idea of getting the best teams from each season together and playing a sort of everyone plays each other system like the NFL and the winners go into playoff. I think that's a great idea for money and just to be great to see. But to have it every season and exclude other teams from it is just not good at all. So I think I think we'll see the Club World Cup, which happens every year, sort of the winners of each sort of area of the world's um, league uh, competition. So Champions League winner plays the Asian Cup winners. I think that's a, I think a more sort of varied and sort of every two years or sort of every three years or sort of bigger version of that would be where to go with it. So I don't think that, I don't think we'll hear a lot from Florentino Perez because he seems to love it. I'm not sure why, but he seems to love it. And I think I don't think it'll go anywhere. I don't think it'll go anywhere. It just needs to be done better. 